Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, once more we pray that you would draw near and enlighten our hearts and our minds, that you would lead and guide us deeper into your word and grant us, Lord, to understand, to receive your promises and your blessings and your graces and your steadfast love through the truth of your word applied to our own lives, made to dwell in us by the Spirit who has inspired it to be given to us. Grant us to know you, O God, through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we pray. Amen. Amen. St. Paul wrote, making known to us the mysteries of his will, according to his promise which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. A plan for the fullness of time. Which reminds me of what Paul said over in Galatians, that in the fullness of time, the Messiah was born. At the right time, Jesus came. And we hear about that. In the Gospel of Luke, we hear about it. In the Gospel of St. Matthew, we hear about it. And yet, we may read these stories side by side and ask ourselves, how does this all work together? Sometimes it feels like Luke is telling one story, and Matthew tells us a different story. Because they don't share a lot of the same facts. They don't share a lot of the same pictures and the same events between the two infancy narratives about Jesus. One talks about shepherds coming and worshiping Jesus, and the one we hear to, heard today, wise men from the east coming to worship Jesus. Those can't really be the same story, just told slightly differently. Wise men are anything but shepherds. Wise men from the east especially. Especially for that word wise men to be magi, astrologers, astronomer, astrologers. The two things went together in the ancient days. Men who watched the skies and studied the stars and understood their movements and saw something beyond those stars, saw messages coming to them, messages that were written in the sky by not just merely fate or some accident, but by someone behind those things, by a creator who organizes all things to reveal his truth to the world. And so they could look up at that sky and say, that's not what normally happens in the sky. What's going on? There must be something important going on in the world, and we need to find it. And that drew the wise men out of their eastern country to come to Bethlehem. But that's not the same thing as the shepherds who were in the fields and who saw angels singing and coming to them and telling them to go and find Jesus in the manger, to go find this child wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger, with his mother and his father there. So how does this all fit together? How does Luke's narrative go with Matthew's narrative? That's what I want to do today is to spend a little time talking about how these two narratives interrelate to one another, how they connect together. Now, in past ages, it wasn't uncommon for church fathers to take the Gospels and to do what we call a harmonization, where they lay the Gospels out side by side and they read them and they 
take the stories that they tell and put them together into some kind of chronological order in order to give a bigger picture because they approach the Gospels as we do with the belief that these have been inspired by God himself. The Holy Spirit has led these to be written. And so the different writers are giving us different perspectives. They are giving us something to understand, and so they are putting it together. And so it was not unusual for there to be these harmonizations of the Gospels, putting all the accounts together into one more cohesive story. Most modern scholars these days poo-poo at that idea. They say it's impossible. Each of these people are working independently. They don't share much of a tradition together, except in those places where they do actually tell the same story, where Matthew, Mark, and Luke share a lot of the same stories. Well, those are times when they had shared material, but everything else they just found on their own, and the others didn't have access to it, and that's why it got left out of their Gospels. So if Matthew tells the story of wise men coming from the East, then he's the only one who had access to that story. He's the only one who knew about that story, and Luke and Mark and John didn't. They had no clue that that was out there, or they would have surely included something like that in their gospel, wouldn't they? The issue with that is we're applying our modern historical techniques to an ancient world that didn't go for precision like we do. When we tell a story... When we look at a history, we want to know every single detail. We want to know when they were born precisely, where they were born precisely. We want to know all the details about the political ramifications that were going on around the birth of some famous person. We want to know where they went to school, how old they were when they got their first, won their first science fair. We want to know all these little details. And that's how we write our histories today. We have to line up everything. We have to find every scrap of evidence in order to write the story of someone's life. The ancient world just didn't operate that way. They didn't operate with that kind of minute precision. Now, they did operate with the reality of we're going to tell a historical story. We're going to t give you historical facts that actually happened. But often, ancient writers would take these things, they'd take all the details that they had, and they would ask themselves, how do I want to tell this story? And depending on how they were telling the story, some details would just be left out because they didn't really go with what they were trying to convey to the people they were writing the story to, that they were writing this history to. And that's something we take into account when we read the Gospels, that each writer has a perspective, and they have an audience, they have a theological idea that they're trying to present through the narrative that they give us. They desire to give an accurate account, but they're not worried about perfect alignment between what the other gospel writers might say. They're not worried about including every tiny nuanced detail. Hence, we get a little bit of different stories between the gospels, especially with the infancy narratives. We get what some would say are contradictory pictures, but I would say are just simply two pictures that can be fitted together. They can't be perfectly harmonized because in approaching it with a theological construct in mind, Luke and Matthew leave out details, and in the process of leaving out those some details, they kind of have to interconnect the other stories that they're telling to give a more to give a complete picture. And so, as Luke tells us the story of Jesus being born, 
and laid in a manger. And the shepherds coming, he jumps from those shepherds to Jesus being circumcised. And then he jumps to Jesus being taken to the temple and presented. And Mary offering a sacrifice for herself after giving birth to a son. Of them completing ritual things that are required of them according to the law. And then he just jumps forward to, and then they moved on to Nazareth. Whereas Matthew suddenly just drops them into Bethlehem. The baby is born and wise men are coming. Immediately after that, you have the wise men depart a different way because they've learned that through a dream that Herod can't be trusted. And when Herod realizes that, he sends people to kill. He sends his soldiers into Bethlehem to kill all the baby boys under two years old to try to get to the infant, Jesus. But Joseph, also being warned in a dream, flees to Egypt with his family and stays until Herod dies. And then they go back. And instead of staying in Bethlehem, because one of Herod's sons is on the throne there, they go on up to Galilee and settle in Nazareth. There are details that they agree on that earlier in the story that Mary is visited by an angel and told that she will conceive as a virgin and give birth to the Messiah. They both agree on the birth of Jesus and the conception of Jesus being by the Holy Spirit. They both agree that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. They both agree that they have to leave Bethlehem and move on to Nazareth. But there are details in between that they tell, stories that they complete the narrative, but they can be fitted together. One of my history professors once said that the Gospels are like a transcendental bus accident from four very different perspectives. Because each one is telling a story, each one is giving us a narrative and telling the truth, but some of the details they just leave out because they're not important to what they're trying to say. And one of the things to recognize between St. Luke and St. Matthew's Gospels is that they are telling the same story for a different purpose. Matthew desires in his writing to a more Jewish Christian audience to tell a story that reminds the people of the bigness of what their faith is supposed to be. To remind them of the promises of God. To remind them that God isn't only concerned about the Jewish nation, he is concerned about the whole world. And so it makes sense seeing that, if how Matthew is presenting Jesus as the fulfillment of all the Torah, of all the Old Testament, and calling forth the Jewish Christians to believe in him, it makes sense that they, he would want to make a point of, and here came Gentiles to worship Jesus. Here came these guys from outside of Jewish culture, from outside of the covenant, who want to come and worship the Messiah. So it makes sense. And then at the end, he makes a big point of centering the end of his gospel on Jesus sending the disciples forth to spread the word, to go out into all the world and to make disciples. Again, reminding the Jewish readers that this was God's plan from the beginning. God had desired to draw all people to himself. And the Messiah is the one who will accomplish that. Luke is writing to a Roman, Theophilus, in his two volumes between Luke, his gospel, and the Acts of the Apostles. He's writing to a, to a Roman, to a Roman. He's writing to someone high up, someone who is probably well off and has some level of authority, and he's writing this story to him. And so it would make sense then for him to leave out a detail like, oh, and then Herod, you know, the guy that 
our Caesar put in charge of our country decide to go kill a whole bunch of babies because he didn't like the idea of someone being called the king of the Jews besides him. It makes sense that Luke would leave out that little detail in his story because Herod was appointed by the Caesar. He was on good, he had been on very good terms with Augustus for many, many years. And to sit there and kind of throw shade at the appointed ruler and governor of your area would get you in a lot of trouble with the government. And so Luke bypasses that and just simply relates the stories of how Jesus is truly the Jewish Messiah who has come to save the world. That he fulfills obligations. He steps forward and travels to the temple to learn, to visit on the Passovers. And so Luke is telling this story to a different audience, to a fellow that's probably in Rome, that has some level of authority within the Roman government, who is well off and can help shape and help guide and help renew the movement and support the movement of making Jesus known. So they have purposes and they shape their narratives according to those purposes. They want to present an understanding of Jesus that complement one another and that can then be fitted together. So they have a time, they have a providence, they have an audience that they are thinking of. And so some details aren't always included. But we put it all together to get a fuller picture of the events surrounding Jesus' birth. And here... I'll quote from a, give you a quote from Augustine. He says that each evangelist constructs his own particular narrative on a kind of plan which gives it the appearance of being the complete and orderly record of the events in their succession. For preserving a simple silence on the subject, those incidents of which he intends to give no account, he then connects those which he does wish to relate with what he has been immediately recounting. In other words, like I've been saying, they don't mention some things, and because they leave out that detail, they just interlink the two pieces of information they gave you. And so in such a manner, it makes the recital seem continuous. It gives a flow to the narrative. It gives a flow to the history that they are giving us. And that's the beauty of the Gospels. Augustine gave us this arrangement for the narratives in his harmonization. Going back, starting with Luke 1, he begins the narrative with, the announcement to Zechariah of the birth of John. And then immediately following that was, would be the announcement to Mary that she is to conceive. And then also from Luke 1, the visit to Elizabeth. And Mary staying with her for three months. The next piece of the harmonization that Augustine gave us is that then the announcement to Joseph from the angel. Shortly thereafter was the birth of John the Baptist and his circumcision. And that's all the precursor details to Jesus' birth. Because then, beginning with Luke 2, it is the journey to Bethlehem that Augustine gives us. The visit of the shepherds. After the shepherds come the visit of the Magi for Augustine. And then Mary and Joseph go to the temple with Jesus, taking him as a child to present him there and for Mary to offer her sacrifice. And then after that visit to the temple, Matthew, he goes back to with the warning of the angel and the flight to Egypt and the massacre of the children. And then them returning to Nazareth after Herod dies. Returning to go to Nazareth, I should say. And then concluding this infancy narrative or the narrative of Jesus' early life, he puts into place after that 
from Luke 2, Jesus in the temple at 12 years old. I think most of us intuitively kind of put the story together in that kind of fashion. Personally, I would probably put the visit of the Magi after Jesus being presented at the temple, but that's neither here nor there. It's a small detail of understanding the narrative. It doesn't change much to move that. But that's how Augustine fitted it all together. And of course, in all of that, there's always a struggle of how to make all these details work together. And I think it's because we sometimes don't understand what's happening or how the culture works. So some would call a contradiction between Matthew saying that they were in a house, that they were living in a house, and Luke, speaking of them, having to stay in what we assume was a stable. But I think it's because we misunderstand the moment and the culture. That Joseph and Mary have traveled to Bethlehem, the place of his family, the place where Joseph's family is from. And they are going to their family residence there to stay with their family. And when it says that there was no room in the inn, that particular Greek word is used elsewhere in Luke to refer to a guest house, a guest room where people could stay. And maybe that's what we should think of here, is that there was a guest room that they couldn't stay in at their family home. And so what did they do? They stayed in the main room of the house, which was the bottom floor of the house, which shared room for animals to come in and rest during inclement weather. That was perfectly normal in the ancient world. That was perfectly normal there in Israel for the lower level of the house to have room for the animals to come and stay inside during bad weather. And so there would be a manger there for the animals to eat from. And so it is there in this lower level of a home that is the family home of Joseph that they were staying. And since it's family, they don't have to leave immediately. Hospitality in the ancient world was so much grander than our idea of hospitality. If you go and stay with family, then it's assumed you can stay as long as you want, as long as you need to, as long as you're helping out and doing things to serve and help the family there. And so if they're staying in the ancestral home of David, then it can be called the, their house. It can be said that they are staying at their house. And so that helps us to understand that Jewish picture, that Jewish place, that they are staying in a home that is related to them. They're staying with members of their family. They're staying on the lower level because there wasn't room in the guest room or it wasn't an appropriate place since Mary was going into labor. And so when the shepherds came, they happened to be on that lower level where the animals were sometimes kept, where it was also a sitting room for people to join together and to be together. And so there they are when the birth happens on that lower level. And that is when the shepherds come and praise and worship Jesus and go out telling people the thing that they had just seen. And so it makes sense then that they stay on for a while because they can't leave because Mary needs to go give sacrifice at the temple. She has to wait 40 days to do that. And so they stay for those 40 days waiting to go make that sacrifice, to go and then to present Jesus to the temple to buy and pay his redemption price that's required for the firstborn son. And so they have to stay. And so they stay on for at least 40 days to await that to happen. And during that time, whether right before or right after that 40 days, the Magi show up. The wise men come following a star that they have seen. They have come from the east. We don't know how long they have traveled, but they have traveled to find the Messiah, to come and worship him. And it's important for us to think about that because that is the Gentiles coming to Jesus. The Gentiles being called out of the wild, pagan, Gentile world 
called away from the worship of idols, called away from the worship of demons to come and worship the true king, to come and praise him, to come and draw near to him, to see him as the king of all creation and to worship him as the God of creation. The fulfillment of all of the promises of the Old Testament that God would call forth the nations to himself, that through his Messiah, through his people, he would bring the world to himself and bring renewal to this world. And he begins with three, well, with some wise men. We don't know if there were three. We assume and think three because there were three gifts. But the wise men come and he begins his conquest of the world by drawing their hearts to himself. The Messiah is worshipped by Gentiles almost immediately after his birth. But because they had interacted with Herod in order to find that place, Herod knows that the Messiah has been born. And so when they don't return to tell him, he goes on a rampage. He desires to kill all of the children under two years of age because he's not sure how old he is. He just knows that sometime in the last couple of years, this child had to have been born. It could have been two months that he was born, that he was. It could have been three months or four months that Jesus was. But Herod goes to the extreme, like he has so often been known to do in history, and goes to the extreme to kill all the infants that he can find under two years of age. And so Joseph and Mary flee because Joseph is warned in a vision. They all flee to Egypt. And that's another aspect that I want to speak of. The flight into Egypt is not some trip of hundreds and hundreds of miles from Bethlehem. The territory of Egypt in the Roman Empire at that time extended up into Gaza. The trip from Bethlehem to the border of Gaza would be us traveling from here to Lancaster. It's just about 40 miles as a two-day trip in the ancient world. It's not some harrowing, multi-week journey for them to have to get down to the middle of Egypt. They just have to get across the border away from Herod's territory because Herod can't cross into Egypt. To do that would be to start a small war between Judea and Egypt. To bring Roman soldiers in to arrest him for going into someone else's area of authority. And so, the Holy Family traveling into Egypt is not some refugee crisis. It's a normal travel arrangement to go from outside Jerusalem down into the Egyptian territory, which extended up to Gaza. People had been traveling that way all the time. It's the equivalent of us traveling from one state to another, not from one nation on one side of the world to another nation, because it was all one empire. People traveled between the sections of the empire constantly. And so it was just a couple of day trip for them to go from Bethlehem down into Egypt to get away from Herod. And then Herod dies shortly thereafter. Whether you think Herod was born or whether you think Jesus was born in the 4 B.C. or 1 B.C., Herod died shortly after that time, either in 4 B.C. or 1 B.C. And so they would have only stayed for a few months in Egypt, probably, before they returned back to Judea. Which then allows them to then travel from there on up into Nazareth to work, to live, to make, an, to make a living and to grow up for Jesus. Traveling back and forth between the ancestral home in Bethlehem, which is a normal thing, to be doing because the Jews, faithful Jews, would be traveling into Jerusalem regularly for the, for the various feasts that they were required to go to. And so these stories aren't that contradictory. They fit together ultimately because 
It was the fullness of time. It was that God wanted us to understand what he was doing. He wanted us to see. And so he gave us these two writers, St. Matthew and St. Luke, to tell two stories that work together to help us to understand what it is that God is up to, what it is that God is doing in this world through Jesus. In one case, he calls Gentiles to himself and sends his son down into Egypt in order to bring him out of Egypt, like a mini exodus, according to Matthew. In another, you see the lowest of the low, the shepherds being drawn to Jesus to worship him and then to go and tell the story of who and what they have seen. To make known the Messiah has been born. And so God chose Gentiles and the lowest of the low to tell the world about Jesus and his birth and their worship of the Messiah. Two sides of the same story. Two sides of the same coin that work together, that fit together, that give us a picture of the birth of Jesus for us. That he has come into the world to redeem us, to renew us, to renew all things. And so these two stories fit together. They work together. They tell us the reality of how Jesus was born and the events surrounding that birth. And it's good for us to reflect on that because the world doesn't like the idea of stories that don't perfectly work together they don't like stories that you have to think about. They don't like stories that you have to explain. But yet that is what we have here in the Gospels, a story that you put together, and that you explain to show how each of these stories are telling us about what God has promised to do. That these narratives teach us that God is about his work in the world, that he is working to redeem and save the world, calling the lowest of the low, calling the pagans and Gentiles to himself in order to redeem all these people and to redeem this world and to redeem you and to redeem me. So let us reflect and dwell in this word that is given to us from God himself. Let us rest and know that it all works together, that it comes together, and that it gives us that picture of who Jesus is and tells us the work that he is already accomplishing as a young child, as an infant, and drawing people to himself and making himself known. And so let us rejoice in these stories. Let us rejoice that God has told us how Jesus was born in order that we would know him more deeply, in order that we would know that God, even in the birth of his son into this world, was fulfilling glorious promises from throughout Scripture. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.